This is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Hampton Sides. Hampton is a narrative historian, best-selling author, and editor-at-large for Outside Magazine. Mountain and Prairie listeners probably know Hampton best from his book Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. But the reality is that Blood and Thunder represents only a fraction of his work. Hellhound on his trail, In the Kingdom of Ice, and Ghost Soldiers are a few of his other notable books, not to mention countless articles for Outside, National Geographic, and other well-known magazines. Hampton's originally from Memphis, Tennessee, but now splits his time between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Colorado Springs, where he's the journalist in residence at Colorado College. This podcast was a live recording of a conversation that Hampton and I had in front of an audience at the Aspen Institute in Aspen, Colorado. This public event was part of a four-day seminar about the history of the 19th century American West, which was hosted by the Aspen Institute Society of Fellows. Since the overall theme of the week was the West, Hampton and I focused our conversation on Blood and Thunder and chatted about the many topics presented in the book. Some of those topics include the Navajos, the life of Kit Carson, Carson's obsession with loyalty, Manifest Destiny, Hampton's process for researching the book, and much more. There are also a few minutes of Q&A from the audience towards the end of our talk. The Aspen Institute filmed the event, so be sure to visit the podcast webpage if you want to watch the video. That's mountainandprairie.com slash Hampton. Having the opportunity to speak with one of my all-time favorite authors at such an exceptional, world-renowned institution was a real dream come true. Endless thanks to the Aspen Institute for inviting me, and the same to Hampton for being so engaging, funny, knowledgeable, and down-to-earth. You're going to learn a lot from this episode, so I hope you enjoy listening or watching. And if you haven't already, you should definitely order and read Hampton's books as soon as possible. You won't be disappointed. My name is Peter Wanders. I'm the director of the Society of Fellows at the Aspen Institute. The Society of Fellows is the Institute's uh, membership program. We have about 2,000 members and run about 60 events that are member-exclusive around the country each year. So we're thrilled to have you here. Um, The Institute was founded in 1950, but its first event was in 1949. As those of you who are locals, which I think is most of you because I recognize all the faces, uh, know, uh, was a, a bicentennial celebration of Goethe. Um, This was a post-World War II effort by our founder, Walter Pepke, to bring people together around shared values and culture of Germany. And I think it was a a remarkably bold and adventurous idea. The Institute was founded the next year as the Aspen Institute for Humanities, with that idea of using the humanities really to bring the world back together again. I have to say the next celebration was the next Walter, when Walter Isaacson came, as many of you know and attended. We had a a celebration of, of Einstein. We've been adding each year now through the Society of Fellows program a new celebration. This year is the celebration of the American West. And really using the American West as a way to dive into a discussion about where we find shared values, where we can look at moral and ethical decisions, and find that common ground that we can talk about. So that's really the inspiration for the three days we have here and the inspiration for this public event tonight um, that I'm excited to invite you to. Ed Robertson is going to moderate our conversation tonight. Ed is the um, conservation director for Palmer Land Trust um, out of um, 
Ooh, Colorado Springs, right? That's right. Sorry, yeah. almost messed up. Um, and we were really excited to have him here. I uh, came across Ed because he runs a podcast called Mountain and Prairies, where he interviews uh, people from the West who are doing innovative and interesting work. Really encourage you to check out his podcast. It's one of my, my regulars, but re- everything from artists to people making, um, you know, working in ranching to uh, the one that was popping in my head is somebody making hats. Yeah. yeah. Making cowboy hats. But really interesting uh, and great work, and I really encourage you to check it out. But we're here to talk to Hampton Side, so Ed, I will turn the conversation over to you and let you introduce yeah. Hampton. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, I, I joke around and say when I started the podcast, I thought I would hit the big time if I could get two people to listen, my mom and my wife. And so the idea that people at the Aspen Institute were listening and then asked me to come and speak with one of my favorite authors, uh, really a dream come true. So I think uh, everybody here is very familiar with Hampton Sides. Um, For the purpose of tonight, we'll be talking about Blood and Thunder, which is uh, one of his very well-known books. But that's just a very small percentage of what he's written, and I've, I've read it all. And uh, he, he's got an amazing talent for distilling loads and loads and years and years and years of research and really serious history into very user-friendly, fun, exciting books. And so, um, you know, obviously you should all read Blood and Thunder, but I just encourage you to check out his others as well if you haven't. And he's got a new one coming out in October that I'm super excited for. So um, Hampton is a Tennessee native. I'm a North Carolina native. So it's very likely that our southern accents are just going to ramp up and up and up, and nobody's going to be able to understand us. Um, but we are, uh, I'm so excited to chat with them. And so we're just going to get right into it. And I think the, the best way to go about this is kind of to establish some of the major players in Blood and Thunder. And then from there, we can dig into some of the, the detail. Um, I think first we should talk about the Navajos. Mm-hmm. No, first we should talk about how Tennessee barbecue is better than North Carolina no, barbecue. No, no, no. <laughs> this could turn into a brawl up here on the, the pelt. But uh, <laughs> we digress. <laughs> yes, that's, that's not a good way to start. Um, but, uh, yeah, so let's talk about the Navajos. They, there's a line in your book where you say that they're the most American of the Native Americans. Mm. And so could you talk a little bit about that and I- I- explain what that means and then just... Talk about the Navajo and even their geographic location where they lived. Well, absolutely. Um, I, I live in Santa Fe, and uh, of course the Navajo presence in, in New Mexico is huge. Uh, and yet I think all the kind of Westerns that we're familiar with, Western movies and TV shows, it's usually the Sioux or the Comanche or some other tribe uh, that is d- depicted, sometimes the Arapaho, the Cheyenne. Uh, but people don't really know that much about who are the Navajo, you know, this Athabascan people that came down the spine of the Rockies and uh, sort of adopted um, the lifestyles of, of anyone and everyone they met. It seemed like they were the expert sort of inhalers of other cultures. And, uh, you know, they, of course, they met the Spanish and they adopted their sheep, the churro sheep, which became the, the foundation of their amazing skills of, of uh, you know, built, of, of making these rugs and weaving these incredible textiles, which, of course, they're famous for. Um, Of course, they adopted the horse, which accelerated their sheep culture uh, because then it allowed them to move over vast areas of of what we now call Navajo country, um, uh, tending to their herds. But they they weren't just a a sheep people or, you know, horse people. They were were also... um, uh, Agriculturalists. They grew corn. They 
they were semi-nomadic, not nomadic. They, they learned a lot from, of course, the Pueblo tribes and uh, uh, adopted many of their uh, uh, cultures and, and, and um, ideas. So, so I, I, I call them the most American of, of, of the American Indians because they seem to have this un- unique talent for ushering in new ideas, new blood, new... Um, New concepts wherever wherever they wherever they uh, roamed over the Southwest, and they were the, by far the most successful tribe in the Southwest at that point. They were growing by leaps and bounds in the kind of eternal conflict between the Spanish, and then then we call it say we say the Mexicans along the Rio Grande and the Navajo. The Navajo were winning that conflict. They were they were more successful in their raids. They were flourishing quite uh, beautifully. Uh, when, in 1846, the United States of America and these Anglo-Americans started marching uh, west to uh, take over this terrain uh, and encountered the Navajo for the first time. So the, the second ma- major character in the book is the individual, uh, Kit Carson. And he's a, a, a historical figure that's just cloaked in mythology. And it's hard to dig down to exactly who he was. And before right. I read your book, I just... I, I thought of him as a cowboy, six foot four, handsome guy, trotting around on a stallion, and you know, doing cattle drives, this and that. I mean, right. that's and it, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Right, five foot four, um, uh, <clears throat> unassuming, unprepossessing, um, awkward around the ladies. Uh, very, he had a, he had a glint in his eye. He had a certain mischievous uh, um, charisma. Uh, or, or so many, many people said. Um, he was someone who always put other people at the center of the story, not himself. Uh, and this was an age of, of windbags and glory hounds. I mean, you know, uh, he, he was the guy who always you know, wanted to let someone else get the glory. Um, very likable in many ways. Most people thought he was um, uh, wonderful, wonderful, you know, true and loyal husband and father and loyal to his friends, and I mean like real loyalty, not like Trumpian loyalty, you know, I mean, you know, both ways. Um, you don't throw your friends under a bus. Um, and, you know, he was that kind of person. Um, but he was also prone to violence. He was, an in, he was a natural-born killer. Uh, people remarked about how in a, in a firefight, you know, he was the guy you wanted on your side. Um, and, you know, it became really difficult for me as I got into the story to reconcile these two personalities, this sort of sweet Kit Carson, this folk hero, this kind of wonderful guy with this very violent guy, even though, of course, I understood he lived in a very different time and very different era, uh, an era of incredible violence, an era where there really weren't any outlaws yet because there was no law to live outside of. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just a really interesting, really interesting cat. I, as I got deeper into the story, I realized that, you know, I, was, I kept brushing up against these two different viewpoints of the same person. One was that he was this wonderful folk hero, yep. and the other was that he was a genocidal maniac. And I hear that. How, how do you reconcile those, yeah. two, those two things? No one, no one said Goering was a really nice guy. Um, um, but r- routinely, people did say that about Carson. And... Um, of course, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and I bored deeply into his life story. And here's a great Indian hater who wasn't an Indian hater at all. He, 
His first wife was Arapaho. He was very close to the Cheyenne and the Utes and many other tribes. He spoke seven different Indian languages. Um, he lived more like an Indian than a white guy for most of his life. Um, truth, the truth is much more complicated, much more interesting. And so um, I realized this was a great kind of character, iconic character, to use as a through line, as a narrative through line for understanding much bigger forces that were out there. I mean, he's sort of like a Zelig, he's sort of like a Forrest Gump character, mm-hmm. um, although you know, I don't mean to say that he was dim-witted at all, because he wasn't, um, who, whose twists and turns in life, he had like nine different lives, um, allowed me to understand the much bigger forces of manifest destiny and, and the conquest and mapping and describing of the West that took place um, during this one lifetime. Sure. Yeah, and uh, it's hard to overstate uh, what emotions Kit Carson brings out. I do a lot of work in eastern Colorado, kind of along the Arkansas River, and there's a Kit Carson County, a town Kit Carson, and just a few weeks ago, we were in the middle of a, a conversation with multiple stakeholders. Uh, your book came up, and Kit Carson came up. One guy chimed in and said, he's an American hero, and before he had even finished the sentence, another person chimed in and said he's an Indian killer. Right. And it's, other than, than water rights in the West, I haven't encountered many things that uh, bring up emotion. Right, like right. Yeah, and, and, and try going to Navajo country. Um, I've done a number of talks in Navajo country, and, you know, the Navajo, like we Southerners are famous for our hospitality, but the Navajo are even more so. They're, they're just so in, 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 uh, embracing and wonderful. And I had a great time everywhere I went in Navajo country. Uh, I gave a talk in Shiprock. This woman stood up and asked me a question, but she said, first thing, she, just, she said, I bought your book, and I'm, I think I may read it, but I may just use it for target practice. <laughs> she said it with a smile, and she's a wonderful lady, and uh, it was, I, I don't know what, what ever happened, but that's the point, is that this is a guy who's viewed almost like we Southerners view Sherman. Yeah. Uh, you know, a guy who led a scorched earth campaign against their people, destroyed every salt source, water source, cornfield, every cow, every sheep, every horse, and led this perhaps unnecessary um, uh, destructive campaign against their people that is still burned into their psyches. So I, I mentioned earlier the, the mythology that's wrapped around Kit Carson. And this morning in one of the sessions, um, the novelist uh, Molly Gloss was speaking, and she was talking about how in the American West, there was almost like this vacuum. Um, there were no myths. We didn't have the King Arthur or the Beowulf that you had back in Europe. And so I want, I, the question to you is, was Kit Carson just such a dynamic individual that the myth just grew out of him? Or was there this vacuum and this um, almost like a demand for a myth and Kit Carson it worked. And so the, the myth kind of latched on him just because we Americans or we humans need to have that. I think a little bit of both. Um, I mean, Carson, um, as I described earlier, was not like the most um, charismatic guy uh, when you first met him. Like people would meet him on the trail and they'd heard about him, they'd read about him, and they'd meet him, this five foot four awkward guy. And they'd say, well, you know, I'm looking for Kit Carson. And they'd, he'd say, well, I'm, well, I'm Kit Carson. And uh, they said, well, you're not the Kit Carson I'm looking for. (laughs) Because Kit Carson was supposed to be six foot eight and blonde and Aryan and uh, blue eyed and very, very beautiful and always gets the girl and always wins the day. Uh, Because that's the hero of these early books, these pulp novels, they were called Blood and Thunders, that um, uh, 
often featured Kit Carson as the hero. They were actually a pretty important kind of book in, the, in its day. It was, it was sort of one of the first mass pieces of literature in American uh, uh, publishing. Uh, people north and south, east and west, loved them. Um, but Carson was often at the center of, of, of these books. Carson hated these books, absolutely hated them, because he didn't understand them. He didn't understand where they were coming from, who these writers were, who needed to, to use him as a, some sort of folk hero. Um, they used his name without getting his permission, without paying him a cent. Uh, they would also perpetuate all sorts of lies. They would say things like, he would kill two, two Indians before breakfast, which was presumably a good thing back yeah. then. Um, and he didn't understand. You know, he basically had to reckon with this celebrity for the, his entire life, starting around, um, certainly by 1846, when, when uh, Kearney's army was coming west. Uh, but even before, because of John C. Fremont and his uh, uh, topographical core uh, books. Um, so it's actually a big thing, theme of the book, is how Carson reckons with or tries to reckon with his own celebrity. And, you know, he doesn't understand where it's coming from. And I think there is an element to which, as you alluded to, um, people back east, uh, not only government people, but, but uh, the myth makers, the, the writers, the novelists, uh, the thinkers, needed to come up with some sort of notion that this new territory, which we just seized mm-hmm. uh, unlawfully from the Spanish and from the Native Americans... Um, was already inhabited by Anglo-American heroes who were doing great things and who were fair and right and true and self-reliant and plucky and all these things that Carson was supposed to be. And in fact, he, he was most of those things. Um, and it also helped that his name was Kit Carson. It has a nice alliterative ring to it. It's easy to remember. Uh, it became this kind of um, watchword or byword for all sorts of... Uh, heroes that I think people back east hoped and suspected were out here already somehow. And, um, but he, it was a difficult and awkward subject for his whole life. He, he really didn't fully get it. And it was made much more difficult by the fact that Kit Carson was illiterate. So he couldn't read these damn books, mm-hmm. even though they weren't you know, great tomes or anything. I dare you to read some of these Blood and Thunders. <laughs> um, but... Um, he had to have other people read them to him around the campfire and say, sort of say, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Uh, and so he began at a certain point in his sort of the middle part of his career to realize that he had to seize control of his own PR, you know, and, and sort of, so he wrote a, he, he dictated a biography, uh, autobiography, which is a very frustrating document, by the way, uh, when you read it, because it's uh, it, you know, it's just real, the bare bones, I did this, I did that. He had this uh, expression. Um, he would say, you know, like, I concluded to charge the Indians. Done so. <laughs> and he was like, the action is greater than words, which was, in fact, at the essence of his personality, I think. And I would adopt that around the house with my wife, who's here in the front row, and, you know, it's like, concluded to do the dishes. <laughs> done so <laughs> and uh you know that, but there was something about it that is very frustrating as a as a as a writer as a 
uh, someone trying to understand his inner life, his emotional life. What did he really think about American Indians or violence that he participated in or any of these things? You don't get that in his autobiography. But he did try to seize control of his own publicity and, um, uh, uh, you know, directed in some way. One of the, the, the questions that I kept thinking about in reading the book, it was he, he was very tight with John Fremont. And I don't think that you could have two more, sep- more uh, polar opposite personalities. You know, Fremont was a glory hound. He wanted to be the center of attention. He was a megalomaniac. And then Carson was the order follower who basically did whatever he said. And I, it's, it would seem to me that a guy like Carson would be so turned off by somebody who was trying to build his name up, um, build up his reputation on everybody else's work, kind of like what Fremont was doing. So how do you reconcile those two's relationship? Because it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's like, you know, the sort of double helix relationship of the, that helps explain the American West. I mean, you have, you have a guy like Fremont who was very intelligent, widely read, very ambitious, uh, with intimate ties to important people back east, in Washington, foremost among those being Senator Thomas Hart Benton, his father-in-law, um, charismatic, be- a beautiful man by all accounts. Just like the, the women swooned over him, and uh, he, but but he was as as you say, he was in love with a vertical pronoun. He, uh, you know, he <laughs> he was the first. He was the most intelligent man in the room, but but the first to admit it. Uh, all those kinds of things, and then you have Carson. You know, who is kind of, you know, completely the opposite. But I guess sort of modern um, addiction counselor type people would say that this was, you know, they enabled, he, he was, they enabled each other. They codependent. Were they were codependent, yes. And um, Carson needed, you know, I think there was something about his personality, be, partly because you want to get deep into his psychology. You know, his father died at an early age. He was orphaned. Uh, he was an apprentice. He was perhaps looking for a father figure. He knew there was this world back east of well, well-educated, intelligent, uh, uh, literate people who, you know, this society that he could never be a part of. And uh, here comes Fremont. He meets him on a, a steamship near, near St. Louis and uh, gets a job to be a scout to go explore the American West. And uh, Fremont just... just won him over and it was a friendship like I said earlier Carson once you became his friend and he became your friend it was impossible to defriend him <laughs> because he believed in loyalty absolute yeah. two way loyalty uh, he, he expected you to be loyal to him and him to you and uh, uh, so he was loyal to Fremont for the rest of his life Fremont did save his life several times. Carson saved Fremont's life many more times. Sure. Uh, uh, and he, they, they, they needed each other. And, and, and he was very deferential a turn, you know, throughout his life, Carson was, to anyone who was better educated than he was. Who, you know, this, the fact that he was illiterate, I think, played a role in some of his insecurities. Uh, but he also needed someone... Most men who are married understand this. You know, we need a we need a punch list. You know, we need we need to be told what to do so we can go out and do it and done so. Yeah. And um, and he was one of those guys. And boy, howdy, when when you gave him a punch list, he went and did it. 
And uh, sometimes it was incredibly violent and um, incredibly hard to reconcile with some of the other aspects of his personality. Uh, so I think, you know, to really understand Carson, you need to understand these other guys in his life. One of them was Fremont. The other one was a guy named James Henry Carlton who told him and forced him, ultimately ordered him to go on the, uh, onto, onto the Navajo campaign. So when you're, you're thinking about loyalty, and I, I feel like that is the common descriptor that comes back to Carson over and over and over. But then if you fast forward through his whole life, you get to the end of his life, and he dies basically destitute because um, he has no assets. The only assets he has are accounts receivable that his friends won't pay him. Uh-huh. And so I think he's got, on paper, $9,000 to his name, but in, in his actual pocket, basically nothing. Right. So this American hero that everybody has just uh, put on a pedestal forever dies almost alone with no money. And, and so that's kind of the flip side of he was that loyal to people, but the people that he trusted in these financial matters didn't repay it. So what, right. what does that say about this blind loyalty, I guess? <laughs> well, he was a sucker, I guess, you know, in, that some, in, some, in some way. And, and also he grew up, you know, came up out of a culture that was not really a money culture. It was a barter cult- yeah. culture. I mean, the, 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 the currency in New Mexico when he was coming up was beaver pelts and Navajo rugs and Taos Lightning whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time he died, the railroad was coming west and money culture was, was, was taking over the west. Uh, and, you know, people, it's interesting to think about Carson is like, a lot of people say, oh, he was this ultimate American who was a blind follower of duty and, and he was a patriot who, who wanted to uh, do what he did to advance American, you know, Anglo-American culture. But in fact, I don't think that's true at all. I, I think that he, he, you know, he ran away from Missouri mm-hmm. to the New Mexico territory. It wasn't a territory even yet. It was Spanish, you know, it was Mexican territory. And he was trying to get away from America. Um, he, the happiest years of his life were the years that he spent as a mountain man, living with the Arapaho, living with the these greasy French dudes, you know, uh, <laughs> trapping beaver in the rivers of the remote American West, and uh, that was a, not a money culture. It was obviously it produced money. It was a very lucrative trade, but they lived a very different world. And um, to understand Carson, really the base. Motivation, I think, of his life wasn't about you know being a patriot. Uh, it was about loyalty. Coming back to this idea, yep. individual loyalty and tribal loyalty, um, th- because this is how you survived when you were a mountain man. This was the code we talked, I think, yesterday in the in the some of the seminars about the code of the West. And for him, the code of the West was absolute loyalty to your to your group. Uh, and the enemy of your group is, is your personal enemy. And that's hardwired into your brain, uh, you know, when you're a 19-year-old kid and coming up through this mountain man culture. Um, certain tribes were your friend, the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, uh, the Utes. Other tribes were your enemy, the Blackfeet, the Comanche. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, by the time he was 30, that was... So hard, so baked into his personality that um, that's the way he viewed the American, uh, the the American West. So when we're sitting here looking back, it's all very clear that that was not an appropriate course of action. It was uh, uh, he what he did was very very bad. But in the 
if you look at it through the lens of his people in his time, it's a different story. I mean, people mm-hmm. were cheering him on. Right. And it, it reminded me of another character from one of your books, um, Captain DeLong from mm-hmm. Kingdom of Ice. Oh, okay. And he, how he had this idea to go on this polar explore, exploration to find basically what the, it was theorized that there was a sea in the middle of the polar ice cap. And that if you could find the secret passage, you get to this warm tropical sea. Well, there's going to be one very soon. Yeah, 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 that's right. He was ahead of his time. So, and now looking back at that, you think that's the craziest thing. I can't believe anybody would believe that. And so can you talk a little bit about the importance of judging these characters, whether it's Kit Carson, whether it's DeLong, even you know, Theodore Roosevelt, right. looking at them in their time period versus from where we sit. Yeah, I, I think a lot of you know, historians call it presentism, this notion that you judge past characters uh, based on present values, whether it's towards race or uh, equal rights uh, or um, whatever. And it, you, know, you, you really have to scrape away everything that we know and think and feel if you really want to understand who these people are um, in history, you got to get scrape away what we what we are today and all what we know and all the advances, hopefully, that we've made as a culture, as a people, and as a democracy, and uh, get get back to where they were then. And um, that's what I certainly tried to do in Blood and Thunder. I don't know if I succeeded, but uh, you know, a lot of people have criticized the book uh, for being too. Uh, Pro Kit Carson. Other people have criticized the book for not being pro Kit Carson enough, uh, especially some of these mountain man rendezvous reenactor guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like if that, that's, I'm doing my job if, if I'm, a lot of people are criticizing me. Um, yeah. uh, so, you know, somewhere, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And, um, you know, and like I say, you know, this book is really curious. How many of you have read Blood and Thunder? Some good number of you, good. Well, you know, it's not a biography of Kit Carson. It, it's just, it's really, it's really using a character, a single character. Um, and I can't think of a better character in the American West, with the possible exception of Fremont himself, who could do this, uh, as, the, as the way to understand the sort of ebb and flow and all these clashing forces, this cauldron of the, of the American West of the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. He's the guy. He, he was everywhere. I mean... You know, he did all this travel in Oregon. He was in Mexico. He was in Washington, D.C. He was in everywhere in between. He did it on the back of a mule. Um, I did it in a Volkswagen Jetta um, and diesel. It was, you know, it got really good mileage. Um, and I'm just amazed at, you know, just, hit, just the span of this man's life and where, he, where all he went. And, and uh and the fact that he was illiterate also created some really profound challenges because historians love uh, documents, and uh, he didn't really have any. Sure. But then I, I live in Santa Fe, and I found out about the, the Kit Carson papers. Uh, they have the Kit Carson papers there, and I went to the national, uh, the, excuse me, the state archives, ordered up the box. They come out and uh, rolled out this box, and I'm like, guess it's Pater, the Kit Carson papers. Maybe no one even knows about this. And I opened up the box, and uh, sure enough, they had the Kit Carson papers, both of them. Um, uh, so it was a problem. It was a real problem researching the book. But, uh, but then I realized I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, new age capital of the world, um, you know, home of high colonics and aura massage and all that, ear coning. So um, we had a bunch of seances uh, with 
Carson himself. Is that in the bibliography? Yeah, that's what the book's about. Yeah. Yeah, direct communication. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, even though he was illiterate, he was written about probably more than anybody on the Western stage at that time. And uh, there's tons and tons of accounts all over the place. You have to go to places like the Beinecke Library at Yale or the Huntington Library in, uh, out in Pasadena to, to really get to the story and sift through what's false and what's fiction and what's real, but uh, you, can, you can find that. Well, that's what I was going to ask in your research, and he worked on this book for five years. I mean, it's no joke. And how, how, much, how did you sift through the nonsense and the facts? Because I would imagine there are equal amounts of both. Out yeah, there. yeah. So from a, just a technical historian research aspect, how did you do that? Was well, hard. Uh, Kit Carson is like a jack in the box, and he pops up everywhere. Like people have called me and say, like, I think Kit Carson was in our backyard. There's a tree that has his initials carved into it, and you know, like I don't know, maybe, probably not, since he was illiterate. Um, <laughs> caves that he supposedly lived in, or you know, um, whatever. But he he was indeed everywhere, which actually produces this kind of conspiracy theory that he, you know, he was in my backyard or he, was, sure. he could have been anywhere. Um, and of course, you know, every creek, stream, county, I mean, Carson City, Nevada, uh, you know, Carson, Kit Carson Park in um, Taos, New Mexico, which we may talk about yes, later, uh, Carson National Forest, Carson, uh, everything's named after this guy. So it creates this kind of illusion that he must have been everywhere. Uh, and he was almost everywhere. I mean, actually. Um, but um, what, was, what was the... How did you sift thread? through... Oh, how did I sift? Well, um, it's hard. I mean, there's all kinds of lore. Like, here's a classic example is that Carson was in a fight with the Comanches and he was outnumbered like 100 to 1. <laughs> Just, yes. He was by himself. And so he reached around and slit the throat of his mule. Uh-huh. So the mule fell and created a barricade so that he could fight the hundred Comanches. But the smell of the blood of the mule scared off all the approaching, attacking horses because they knew the smell of, of a horse, a mule, whatever, and therefore wouldn't come close. Yeah. This was in numerous blood and thunders. And as far as I can tell, it didn't really happen. Um, uh, so, and I'm, I'm almost sure it didn't. I'd heard that before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's one of the hundreds of these things you have to sift through. And um, there's a guy named Karl May. I think several people mentioned him last night at one of our, uh, a, a German writer who wrote these novels, often starring Kit Carson. And he made up all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, so you just have to sift through it all. It's usually bullshit. <laughs> but the real story is more interesting because he really did do ama- amazing things. And uh, it seemed like whenever there was, in the heat of action, he was the guy that saved the day and was the coolest under pressure and uh, killed the most people and got, got to safety or saved, you know, got the message to Washington. He was also a transcontinental courier. He met, brought these messages to Washington, including possibly in one of the saddlebags was news that, the, that they had discovered gold in California. I don't know. I was a little skeptical on that one, but... Um, he hated Washington, by the way. No surprise there. They treated him like Tarzan, like this you know, <laughs> character just came out of the wilds of the West and um, didn't know how to use a fork and stuff like that. But 
So you briefly uh, alluded to this a second ago, Kit Carson Park in Kit Taos. Carson. Yeah. And I think that's a great example of some of modern-day society's attempts to fix some of these wrongs from, from the old days. And there, you know, if you look like Mount McKinley in Alaska, that has now been renamed to Denali officially. But you've climbed, right? I did, well, I don't know if you call it climb. I kind of threw, threw up my way up. <laughs> it was not, not pretty, uh, but I got it to the top. Um, so Denali, and then there's all this discussion about the Washington Redskins constantly. And so there was a park in... We used to call them the Foreskins when I was <laughs> you know, living in Washington. But, uh, yeah. but we digress again. So, um, so, in, uh, so, so Kit Carson Park. So tell the story about what happened in Texas. Oh, Kit Carson Park. Maybe you've heard, but uh, sort of similar to what's been happening in Richmond and, and Charlottesville and other places back east uh, with uh, Confederate monuments and the question of what to do with them and should we change their name or remove statues. Uh, Kit Carson Park is in the center of Taos, and it's the place where people meet, and it's sort of the central park of Taos. It's called that mainly because he's buried there, he and his wife, and um, uh, it's right on Kit Carson Avenue, right by, right up against Kit Carson National Forest, and uh, you know it's just sort of like it's part of the history of this town. But I understand that um, Native Americans hate this guy, and uh, you know we do live in a democracy. Uh, we can't pick and choose our history, but we do live in a democracy. And if people really want to debate and think and rethink and re- reboot, uh, I think that's fine and fair. Um, so there was a movement to change the name of Kip Carson Park to something else. Uh, unfortunately, the town leaders uh, kind of just had a sp- sort of spasm, and they didn't have a good answer. And so he said, we'll call it Red Willow Park, which is what Taos means in uh, the Taos Pueblo you know, Tiwa language. It's, they're the people of the Red Willow. But they never consulted the people of the Red Willow. Uh, the Taos Pueblo you know, Indians were not ask what did they think and so they pitched a fit and uh so we're kind of back to square one i think it's still called kit carson park but i get it it's it's tough i mean kit carson was involved in the the indian wars one of the last chapters of his life you know he was he was a mountain man he was he was a he was a a hunter and a rancher and a a scout and a transcontinental courier and a soldier and a ultimately a brigadier general but in the last sort of acts of his life he was an indian fighter uh, against the Navajo and the Apache, uh, several Apache tribes. And um, so they hate him. Uh, and uh, so what do I really think about it? I don't know. I, I think it, it, as long as you debate these things and really, really know what you're talking about and there's education behind it and it's not just sort of a knee-jerk reaction, I, I'm fine with it. Um, he is buried there, however. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a question, what do you do with that grave, too? Are you going to... Sure. Unearth it and move it somewhere else. Um, so, um, I don't know. It's it's a debate that will live on, and it's an important one, actually. I, my usual answer, though, to this question of what to do with these statues is not to tear them down, but to build more statues. Mm-hmm. We need Native American statues, African American statues, statues more and more statues involving women in the West, for example. Uh, we you know we've only honored these these dead white guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to. The, the biggest corrective to this problem is to build more statues. <laughs> so aside from building more statues, what would you say, and I know you're not a politician, but from a, a practical standpoint, how, how do you see us getting past this divisiveness? 
because it seems that the, the rhetoric on both sides, people were only retreating more and more into their corners. Yeah. And it doesn't, and maybe they're just the loud people. Maybe there's a lot of con, you know, people in the, in the middle that are reading and thinking it through. But how do you see us getting past this? Because it, it just seems to be getting more and more and more hyped up almost on a weekly basis now with the media. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. And, you know, we live in a really, we, I thought we lived in a divisive time um, before Trump was elected. And it's now gotten even, you know, unimaginably worse uh, and to the point where families can't talk to each other. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, they can't go on vacation together. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's unbelievable how how this has happened. And uh, there have been other times in our history where that's where it's happened. Uh, in 1950, with, when McCarthyism kind of reared its head, there were, there, were, there were desperate times there where people weren't able, really, Democrats and Republicans, to talk to each other. Um, we, we do seem to move past these, these eras, and I hope we will continue to do so, you know, you know move past this one right now. Um, honest debate, you know, conferences like this one where we've had a lot of really interesting um, perspectives presented in a very civilized Format. I got to say, honestly, uh, just how privileged I feel to to have been invited to this conference. There's actually, you know, dozens of people who are participating in this conference who have made their professional life's work the study and understanding of the American West. I, I've just written one book. If you uh, feel honored, think uh, how I feel. Yeah, yeah. I got a, a laptop and a microphone. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've made the West my home, and I've written this one book. But I'm I'm not a scholar of the American West like a lot of these yeah. amazing folks are in all different disciplines. Um, so, but anyway, um, civilized conversation and uh, listening to each other, and uh, you know, venues like the Santa, uh, the uh, Aspen Institute uh, are are certainly an important way for us to get a conversation going that uh, that will lead to something positive. So, one of the things I loved about your book was I read it pretty soon after moving west. And it gave me this base level of knowledge. But then when you look at the, the, the 50 pages of footnotes and endnotes, it gives you, it's really just a jumping off point to go read on infinite number of other subjects. And that's what I loved about it. Um, and this is a hard question, but if you had to pick three, two to three books that you would recommend after people read Blood and Thunder, where should they go? Because it's infinite. Mm-hmm. Where should they go? What subject should they should they follow, and what book should they read that you would recommend? So many good books. Gosh, uh, one book was mentioned in one of our earlier seminars. Uh, Susan McGuffin, um, uh, whose diary of, of, of her trip west, um, I can't remember the title of it honestly. Incidents, something. Um, anyone? Down the Santa Fe Trail. Down the Santa Fe Trail. Um, a woman who came west with the Army of the West, uh, Stephen Kearney's army, and who was a young woman pregnant from Kentucky, and she just happened to be a brilliant writer who took all this stuff down. I quote her widely in the book, and she, um, I highly recommend this book uh, as a kind of a uh, early document of, 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 of the American perception of, of the American West. One of my favorite books of, the, of, of all the West, Western literature is Stegner's um, Beyond the 100th Meridian. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, just you have to read it. It's yeah. just an amazing, amazing book. doesn't really figure into my book, but um, um, uh, maybe some of Cormac McCarthy's books, uh, his novels. He's a real difficult guy. I've gotten to know him a little bit. Oh, but, have uh, you really? <laughs> but he lives in Santa Fe. But he, he's a... Uh, 
you know, powerful writer and someone who, you know, if you're going to read a, a novel, some, um, you know, I think Blood Marinian is w- one of the great ones uh, of, the, of the American West. Yes. Um, yeah, so who are, when you think about, when you, when you were writing this book, and who, were there any um, kind of mentors or heroes or influences that you looked to when you were thinking, all right, I'd love to, to write this sweeping uh, history of the West. Was there anybody that you thought about and you thought, yeah, that if it could turn out like their writing, I'll feel really good about yeah, it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I grew up in Memphis, and uh, the first writer that I ever met was uh, a Memphis historian, a, a really interesting character um, uh, named Shelby Foote, uh, Civil War historian. He, he, had the bo- he had the beard, he had the pipe, he had the accent. Um, and his son, Huggy, <laughs> Huggy and I, we're, we're, we were in a rock band together. Nice. Uh, Argus, have you heard of him, uh, Argus? Um, we were pretty good. Uh, but uh, we would do everything we could possibly do, you know, cranking up the Hendrix and the Pink Floyd and so forth to prevent Shelby Foote from finishing his trilogy of the Civil War. Um, but, but I later got to know Shelby and un- sort of understood what he was trying to do. He was a novelist uh, who later came to writing histor- history. He was a narrative historian, and um, that was what... Um, uh, I didn't know that's what I was aspiring to be. Yeah. I didn't even know it had a name, narrative history. Uh, but that is exactly what I've, I've tried to do and, and was very consciously trying to do with Blood and Thunder, was to write a big, sprawling, epic narrative history that's hopefully very readable and uh, brings in a lot of history, and, um, uh, but, is, but reads like a novel, if, mm-hmm. if that's at all possible. Um, it was also Shelby who gave me a great piece of advice when I did an interview with him for a magazine. Um, he said, uh, uh, you know, he had this great accent, uh, handsome, uh, uh, you should never, ever talk about your work. Never. <laughs> and and it was, basically his point was, if you talk about your work, he said, great work is written under pressure. Uh, like, a, like a, remember those old pressure cookers uh, that my grandmother cooked beans in? And if you let off the pressure in little bits and pieces, there's no pressure left, and the beans don't get cooked. And he's just like, if you go to cocktail parties, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to tell you about this thing I'm going to write. And you go to, go to dinner parties, and you, know, you just start letting off the pressure. Uh, you're not going to, you know, because it's so hard to write a book. You know, you just, there's a million reasons for not writing a book. And so um, I took that to heart. I really try not to talk about what I'm working on. Um, Unless I'm having a real problem that I'm, you know, trying to solve sure. with another writer, perhaps. And so I think that's good advice, partly because I'm superstitious, you know, like maybe I won't write the book and then I'll just feel like an idiot when I see that person at the next cocktail party. Um, but it's also an important lesson, I think, that, you know, it's like good, good work uh, is, is, in fact, done under pressure. And uh, uh, keep, it, keep it inside until you're ready to really show it to the world. That's great. Um, I could keep asking Amy questions for like 10 hours, but we're going to open, open it up to questions from the audience for a little while. So um, I'm sure there are some questions here. We've got a microphone. So I think we're recording this. So if you wait for the microphone, you go right there. Where would you put Irving Stone's book, uh, Men to Match My Mountains? In the context of, we, you talk about John C. Fremont or uh, just as a, 
a piece of work on the West. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, isn't isn't that a novel? Isn't it, it is fiction? So it's sort of several clicks on the dial. I, I think you know a lot of people will tell me, uh, as and I think they mean it as a compliment. They say, you know, I really enjoyed your novel, and I wince because it's not a novel. You know, like every single fact in my book was so hard hard earned, hard won, you know, or I got it from somewhere, some sure. book, some document. Um, and it, uh, it's, it's not a novel. It, it is only a few clicks away. I mean, I'm aspiring to make it read like a novel in terms of pacing and structure or characters or whatever. But um, uh, then there's several clicks over this way and you get into historical fiction, which is great. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I read a bunch of historical novels while writing this book, uh, researching this book. And uh, Irving Stone is certainly one of them. Um, I, I grew up, when, when I was young, I, I read a lot of, uh, 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 who's the guy who, who, who wrote um, uh, Ragtime? Um, E.L. Doctorow. Uh, you know, he was a great historical novelist. Uh, you know, do, bringing in and absorbing so much research and then kind of spinning fiction. But whenever I'm reading a historical novel, I'm always kind of uh, toggling back and forth in my mind between, well, like, what is real and what is not real? I I need to know. I I kind of feel like I'm not on solid ground. Uh, So I keep coming back to wanting to do narrative nonfiction. It's always bothered me um, that I work in a profession that has a negative in front of it. It's very weird. Like, it's maybe the only profession that says, I'm not this, I'm something else. <laughs> and and it, it shouldn't be the other way around. I mean, it shouldn't be like truth or non, non-truth. Um, shouldn't it be truth or bullshit or yeah, something like that? I like that. Um, but anyway, yeah, non, how, how is it, the, it? It basically presumes that lying and making up shit is the default position of human of the human condition? You know, we, we, you have to. Anyway, that's fine. It's, I love novels too, um, but uh, non, yeah, nonfiction. Like Derek Jeter is a non-basketball player. <laughs> Who does that? Um, anyway, here's one right here. Yeah. Oh, so we got one back here, and we'll come to you next. Hi, my name is Janie, and I'm actually from the Navajo Nation. So it's Uh-oh, rather quite interesting that I'm just picking up. I haven't read your book yet, but I will. Uh, but, you know, just language I have an issue with and how you're celebrating. It's amazing things that he's killed the most people. And I'm a part of that group that survived, you know, those internments and that long walk. And it's, it's 150 years in July that right. my people have signed the treaty to survive and be returned back to those homelands. So I understand about... Uh, you know, complexities of humans. I mean, I just came back from Germany and how they teach about Hitler and the Gestapo and the rise of that and the perception. So I'm just wondering, you have not mentioned at all Native people or historians, and I'm wondering, or authors or people from those communities that have been affected, have you, I mean, have you been including them or where are those voices? Good question. Um, Well, up until fairly recently, uh, Navajo history or any Native American history was largely oral history. Um, and up until recently, there, there, there weren't um, a whole lot of uh, Navajo accounts of what happened. I certainly used the ones that I had to work with. I used a lot of oral history, though. 
And, um, uh, you know, I think it's, um, I'm not sure how many pages of my book are devoted to the Navajo conflict, but um, many. Um, and, and most of that is based on oral histories that were taken uh, right after, right after uh, well, during the Great Depression, during the WPA, there were a bunch of writers who went to, into Navajo country and a lot of other places and took these oral histories uh, from people who remembered what, it was, what happened then, not, not what my great-great-grandfather did, but like what my father told me, that, you know, one or two generations away. So in terms of the Navajo part of my story, I'd say a large part of it is based on that WPA research um, that was, was taken then. Um, so, um, but, you know, and, and I also think it's important to understand in terms of the Navajo situation, there had been for hundreds of years a, a, essentially a, a low-grade war going on um, between the Navajo and the Spanish, uh, then the Mexicans, in which they stole each other's sheep and cattle and women and children uh, and killed shepherds and killed each other whenever possible. Uh, and this was a war that had gone on for over 200 years uh, at the point when the United States came west and sort of took over this part of the world. And um, I think it's one of the kind of weaknesses of, of the Navajo interpretation of all these events is that the Navajo never recognized that this war took place. The Navajo seemed to often uh, argue that the United States just kind of came out of nowhere and visited this scorched earth campaign upon them for no reason, uh, that there had not been multiple treaties violated, that there had not been multiple attacks and, and massacres on both sides that had led up to this culminating event. Um, I don't know, many of my Navajo friends in Santa Fe, where I live, um, I don't think are very honest about that. They don't look honestly at the fact that this is a, a war that actually had two or three actually multiple sides. This war also extended to the Utes and the Comanche and many other native tribes. If you go to those, those tribes and talk about the Navajo, they will talk about how the Navajo were our ancient enemies, that they were amazing raiders and attackers and stole our women and children. And uh, uh, th This was kind of an untenable situation that was going on for a long, long time. And uh, unless, unless the Navajo are arguing that we should go back to that time where we steal each other's women and children uh, and, and cattle and sheep and, and sort of live in this sort of Hobbesian world of where life is nasty, brutish, and short, um, I think that you have to honestly reckon with what was happening in the 1860s and this war uh, that was proposed not by Kit Carson, but by a guy named uh, James Henry Carlton uh, on orders that were signed by and approved by Abraham Lincoln, uh, that's when you begin to realize that Kit Carson is an important but actually uh, only kind of a, an executive role in this, in this thing. That This was, a, this was a, a war that was ordered from the very highest levels of the U.S. government. Um, and it becomes a much more complicated, a much more complicated story. It doesn't make it better or worse. And in fact, I think that's a big problem that people have with my book is the, the notion that if you're going to write about someone that you're automatically celebrating them. Uh, that would mean you can't write about anyone who's a villain or anyone who's a bad person in history. Um, I think I would challenge you to find a single book in um, American letters that 
is more vivid in, in, in depicting Carson's scorched earth campaign against the Navajo and all its brutality and all of its um, vivid you know, uh, cruelty, really. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm celebrating Kit Carson. It's, it's, it just means that I'm writing a book in which Kit Carson is a central character in a much, much bigger story. Give the mic. Thank you. How do you evaluate Carson compared to Custer, William Cody, possibly Davy Crockett, and Daniel Boone? You know, this, given the qualifications, what historically have been deemed admirable characters, we now recognize right. the faults of all of them, but how do you put them in comparison with Carson? I'm not an expert on those other characters, really. Um, most of them were showmen or people who are really good at uh, uh, sort of putting themselves, as I said earlier, sort of in the center of the story. Uh, Carson was a horrible businessman. He, he died destitute, as you said. He, um, he was not someone who could sort of take the pieces of his myth and build an edifice that could make money for himself. Um, he was also not a, a narcissist like Custer. Uh, he really wasn't. Um, whatever you want to say about Custer, I mean, Car- uh, Carson and, uh, you know, and it's unfortunately so many of these guys have a name that begins with a C and they get all mixed up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Carson was not, the, you know, Car- was not anything like Custer uh, in terms of his demeanor and, the, and his body language uh, and his um, uh, sort of sh- chivalr- chivalrous or pseudo chivalrous demeanor. He was he's just a very different kind of cat. Um, he's supposedly distantly related to Daniel Boone uh, when he came out of Missouri. His family was uh, distant cousins with Boone, and some people have said, therefore, you know, sort of the baton was handed over from Daniel Boone in Kentucky to the Carson to Carson in Missouri, and this family kept moving westward. Uh, seems very skeptical, very dubious to me. But um, I've forgotten who else you mentioned. Davy Crockett. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there, you know, th- there are people who try to kind of say this is a progression of, 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 of white American folk heroes. And uh, I actually just think that um, they're all actually pretty different. Uh, they all came out of different times. They had different sorts of uh, worlds that they were living in as they moved their way west. But, the, you know, what's different really about Carson is kind of this underlying kind of tragic aspect, I think, that, that was part of his personality, which was, and part of his life story, which was that he really participated in the destruction of, of the world that he loved, unwittingly, and for the most part. Um, he came west, those were his happiest days in his 20s, when he was a mountain man, when he was living with the Cheyenne and, and the Arapaho and the mountain guys, and uh, live in this kind of free world. Uh, and they nearly trapped the beaver to extinction. Uh, and then he became a hunter on a, uh, on a, at a place called Bent's Fort and participated in the hunting of the buffalo, which we all know where that ended. Uh, and then he participated as a scout in the Topical Graphical Corps expeditions, which ultimately led to this mass exodus of, of, of uh, immigrants west on the Oregon Trail, and led to, you know, the Mormons coming and, you know, all these, all these folks flooding to the West 
uh, it's creating, which then led to the railroads, and the railroads created this whole different West that he never really wanted to be a part of. It was clear by the end of his life that he was done with this new West. He didn't understand this new West, and yet he was central in, you know, to the creation of this West. He, he fouled his own nest. He, he destroyed his own paradise, and um, I think that um, the ultimate part of the tragedy is he didn't fully realize that. He didn't, uh, he didn't fully see it till the very end of his life, that he had been a central figure in the destruction of this world that he loved so much. We've got a few over here. There's an anecdote uh, that I think might have been told in Kit Carson's autobiography. He was helping the army chasing some Indians who had captured a white woman, and when they finally arrived, the woman had already died. But among her effects, he found a Blood and Thunder pulp novel about Kit Carson. And would you talk a little bit about that and about his reaction to that? Yeah, great question. Um, This was the moment, as far as I can tell, when Kit Carson first encountered his own myth. The the time when he first became aware of these books that were written with him as a central character. And uh, a woman named Ann White, you can't invent these names, uh, was on the Santa Fe Trail when her party was attacked by Apache, uh, Hickory Apache Indians, and uh, um, all the men were killed. Um, Ann White and her baby daughter and a, a black slave were captured and um, Kit Carson sort of got the, got the call to go find her. And this is one of the things about Kit Carson, you know, with no remuneration, with no, you know, no official title. Uh, he just, he just uh, was a great, he was, a, he was great at reading sign. He was, he was a great tracker, and uh, he lived near the Santa Fe Trail, so he, he went after uh, this party of, of Apache and in search of Ann White. After something like 14 days, two weeks uh, on the trail, it, deep in, uh, into the staked plains of, of the panhandle of Texas, he found, uh, he found her. And, uh, uh, but the element of surprise had been lost. Uh, the Hickorias scattered, and he um, found her in this camp with, with an arrow through her heart. She had been killed. Her baby had been, uh, no, her baby and the slave uh, were never found again. Uh, but by her side, very close to where she was, that he found this blood and thunder. And in the blood and thunder, which he could not read but had someone else read to him, um, the story was about how Kit Carson had, been got, had gotten a call to go find a woman, a white woman who'd been kidnapped by Indians on the Santa Fe Trail, uh, and how he had succeeded miraculously in finding her and uh, saved the day and rescued her and... Uh, killed a bunch of Indians and, you know, um, restored her to her family back in Boston. <laughs> and, you know, he read this thing and, I mean, he heard this story around the campfire and, uh, and then someone said, hey, you want this? Is, this is your copy. You, this is, you, you need to have this book. And he said, no, burn the damn thing. He was so fed up with this book, he didn't understand it. And he thought that this book had given Ann White a false hope. Maybe she had been reading it and thought that 
she would be saved herself if uh, this great American hero had come and found her. Obviously, he had failed. Um, so it haunted him for the rest of his life. Uh, and it's a true story. It's one of the truths, you know, talking, sifting between the, the truth and the bullshit. This is actually one of the true stories. And it's something that, uh, I mean, it's just a fascinating little side chapter of his life. Thanks we for asking. Time for one more. Right here. We've got a microphone coming. What about his personal life? You mentioned that he was married. Did he ever have children? Was his marriage successful? I mean, <laughs> it's hard to believe it would be, but... <laughs> Wait, what did you say? I last said part? it's hard to believe it would be successful, but what about his uh, personal life, his marriage, etc.? Good question. Uh, his personal life. Um, he had three wives. Not at the same time. His first wife was named Singing Grass. She was an Arapaho, one of the loves of his life. They had two children, um, one of whom died young, and the other lived, lived on a little bit longer. And, um, uh, but she died in childbirth with that second child. Um, his second wife was Cheyenne. She kicked him out of her teepee in what is known as the Cheyenne divorce. Um, didn't, didn't, that one didn't work well at all. And his third and final wife for the rest of his life was uh, Spanish, um, Josefa Jaramillo from Taos. Um, can't remember how many years they were married. Um, she was 18 years his junior. Uh, she was taller than he was. There's one, one, at least one, maybe two pictures of her. She was a beauty. Um, she would be played by Selma Hayek, or, you know, you know she's you know, pretty hot. And... Uh, and people have wondered, what, the, what did she see in this greasy, grizzled, smelly old mountain guy? Um, but um, they were married. They had eight kids. Um, these kids were spread out all over, uh, all over Colorado and New Mexico. And when I went on the book tour, I did meet descendants of many of, of the Carson family. Um, they're out there. Um, and, of course, there's Johnny Carson. Um, <laughs> no, no, no relation. Um, but, uh, but, I mean, it was a great theme of his life, really, I think, was this notion that kind of like Ulysses, you know, he was going to get back to his wife. But he seemed to be constitutionally incapable of saying no to errands that were, put, you know, proposed to him by um, the U.S. government or other people. Uh, so he was constantly on the road. She had to raise these kids pretty much by herself. I'm sure she resented him. Um, the Jaramillo family in Taos has a lot of stories along those lines. Uh, but, you know, he's, he seems to always be, you know, he's in Oregon, he's in Montana, he's back east, he's fighting in the Civil War. We didn't even get to the Civil yeah. War and battles he fought in the Civil War. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, when's he going to come home to Taos and be a normal guy and have, a, uh, have, a fa- have his family and his family life? Um, and I do think it was one of the great regrets of his life that he didn't do that. But that's how he ended his life story. Um, he, he had an aneurysm on his aorta, and he had been diagnosed, but he wanted to go to Washington, D.C. to negotiate a treaty for the Ute Indians, who were his closest friends, his, the closest tribe, which he successfully did do. Um, he got a secondary diagnosis that it was indeed a... a, 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 a aneurysm on his aorta, which I've later learned is a classic sign, by the way, of syphilis. 
Um, but, and then he got on a train this time, and not a horse, not a mule, uh, got on a train and, and took the train all, all the way back to um, Denver because he knew that Josefa was pregnant with their eighth kid and he wanted to be there in time. And he got there a couple of days before she gave birth to their final you know, baby. Uh, she died in childbirth. He died a month later. Um, some say of a broken heart, but really it was that aneurysm that burst. And uh, that's the end of the story. Um, yeah, he, was a, he was true to Josefa and um, by all accounts was a, a loyal and true husband, but um, was hardly ever there, uh, except in the very last years of his life. They're buried together in Taos, um, in uh, Kit Carson yeah. Park, uh, which may be renamed. Uh, and uh, that's sort of the end of the story. But uh, that's, that's, that's the saga of Blood and Thunder and Kit Carson. Thanks so much for listening tonight. Ed, Ed, thank you so much for yeah. leading our conversation. Hampton, both your talk tonight and your book really leads to that idea of looking at our culture, what makes a good society, what our role is as a leader, and, and really how Kit Carson walked through his life. I'll, I'll pull the quick quote because you didn't use it tonight, which was, he said, I never knew if I was doing good or bad, but I always did my best. So thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.